In the course of my uh, preparation, I was going a, a number of different ways in the message this morning, and um, I just have chosen to follow a particular path, but there was two topics that did catch my attention, and there's a couple articles that we've placed on the website for you to uh, peruse if you want to on your own. Uh, the first article is an article by um, John Newton. It's actually a letter that he wrote, um, and it's uh, about guidance, how we find guidance in life, and it's a, a very helpful, um, encouraging letter that uh, John Newton wrote. And then the second is an article uh, by Kathy Keller. Um, Kathy Keller is the wife of Tim Keller, who is the, the pastor of, I think it's Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York. Um, and uh, the article is um, uh, advice on marriage, and particularly those considering marriage to an unbeliever. And uh, I think it's important that we think through that because we continue to be challenged on that issue in our lives today as God's people as we wait for his provision of a, of a spouse. And uh, so both of those articles are there on the, on the webpage for you. And uh, uh, they're there for your leisure and for your opportunity to read when you have some time to do that. Now take your Bibles and turn in them to the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 3. And uh, what I'm going to do... Uh, this morning is just read portions of it as we go, and uh, I think let the story unfold that way to you. And uh, so as you're um, looking for Ruth chapter 3, what I'm going to do is just uh, lead us in a word of prayer. And I'm also going to pray as we pray for um, uh, Wendy Bowman. Is Wendy here today? Wendy's way at the back. Wendy flies back to uh, England. Um, Is it this week, Wendy? Yeah, this week, Wendy. And so uh, this week, Um, Wendy flies back, and so we want to pray that God will be with her as she returns and that God's hand would be upon Sally as um, she stays as well. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we come before you now, and it is with hearts that are um, just rejoicing uh, in the fact that uh, Ted has placed his trust in you. And uh, we pray particularly for Ted even this morning that that Christ would become beautiful to him. Um, even in these years or days that may be ahead for him. May he come to just um, rejoice in God, his Savior. Father, we do want to pray for Wendy as she heads back to uh, England uh, this week. We thank you for the couple years that she's been out here. And Lord, we watch your plan unfold, and sometimes it's not always uh, clear to us and sure to us, and yet we know that your providence is leading her there for now. So we pray that you would go before her, that you would provide a way for her, that uh, Wendy would know the, the, the pleasure of God as she um, sets on that plane and heads home, and that you would be with Sally as well as she uh, is remaining here. And Father, we come before you with your word, and um, what a gift it is, open before us today. Sometimes the lessons are hard to find, um, sometimes your word speaks loudly, sometimes it whispers, and sometimes we have to search. And um, So would you do a work in our lives, would the searchlight of your word shine brightly on a specific area in each of our lives, even today? We pray in the wonderful and precious name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Ruth chapter 3 is a, is a fascinating um, chapter. As I was reflecting on it, uh, I was reminded that um, those of you who write, and I know some of you here write, um, writing is an art. And uh, you don't just kind of sit down and, and spew out a, a novel or a story. Often it is months, if not years, of plotting and of planning and of, um, of figuring out how the story is going to unfold and how it's going to end. And there's all manner of literary devices that, um, that a writer will use to 
illustrate points or to get certain focal points out or main settings out. And the same is true of Scripture. Uh, The Scripture is some of the most beautiful literature we will ever find, and the authors use um, a variety of literary devices to get their truths across and to emphasize certain things in the story. And the book of Ruth is um, uh, certainly a a book that is well thought out, Um, not just from a storyline and not just from um, redemption history, but even in the way it is literary, even its literary um, presentation. One of the structures of a lot of Old Testament narrative, and uh, still narrative today, is what we call a chiastic structure. And a chiastic structure is a a balanced structure, a structure that gives symmetry and balance to a a portion of Scripture and and serves to draw into a focal point and then draw out from a certain focal point. And we find that structure is embedded in the whole story of the book of uh, Ruth. Particularly, when you think of Ruth, Ruth begins by, uh, in chapter 1, by describing many years, um, many years, at least 10 years, possibly more, um, of the life of, of Naomi and her husband and her children and then her daughters-in-law. And then from chapter two, we move to uh, chapter one, we move to chapter two, and we focus on a single day, a single day where Ruth is out gleaning in the field. And then we come to chapter three, and we find a focus on a single night. And then we will find next week as we gather together that the, uh, the horizon expands a little bit more to a single day. And then as we clu- conclude in chapter 4, we find that the horizon is now many years again. And so by the use of that sort of literary structure, uh, the writer has caused us to begin to realize that the focus of Ruth is Ruth chapter 3. And the focus of Ruth chapter 3 is a night. It all zeroes in on a specific night. Everything flows to that night and everything flows from that night. It's the greatest point of tension in the story of Ruth. And I want us to be, be cognizant of the fact that we, that we are aware that it's nighttime. Because nighttime is often a, a time of the most critical temptation in our life. It's often the time of, 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 the most, um, uh, uh, of the strongest emotional struggle that we face in life. Nighttime is often a symbol of spiritual oppression or spiritual heaviness or darkness. And so when we come to the very heart of the story, we find ourselves at night. And there is great tension as this night unfolds. The second thing that I want us to just understand from this structure, because I, help, I think it helps us understand life, and it's the way that the, uh, the providence and the sovereignty of God unfolds in our life. Because I think the story of Ruth illustrates the way of God in our lives and in our world. It tells us that God is not only involved in the years of our lives, but God is intimately involved even in the nights of our lives. That he's involved in those very dark, very difficult times that we face in life, working out his will and accomplishing his purposes through us. In other words, many years of walking with God can culminate in a single evening, an an evening that will impact many years to come. Put another way, our years are filled with many normal days, day in, day out, coming and going, normality to life, marked by um, one or two or three or five extraordinary days that have an outstanding impact 
on our life. An impact that a decision that has to be made or an encounter with a person or a deal that's made that will then impact our life for many, many years to come. And so we realize that life is dominated by a handful of significant days or moments which are boundaried by many years previous and many years to come. As we come to this passage, not only is it a fascinating passage from a literary perspective, it's a fascinating passage because it's a difficult passage. What do we take of Naomi's scheme? How are we going to interpret her plot? What is her motive? Would we call this wise or unwise um, counsel? And it's best as we look at this portion of Scripture to, to look at the context, to look at the phrases, to look at the words, to look at the characters, and see if we cannot determine what God is trying to teach us through this. So I'm going to read just the first four verses, and we'll just work our way through this text this morning. And um, as I, after I read them, I will give you what I sort of wrote on my, my notepad uh, to reflect on what I had just read. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Her motive was honorable, possibly. As I wrote in my my notes, Naomi, what were you thinking? I want to find rest for you is what she tells Ruth. I want you to be settled. I want you to have a a permanent home. I want you to have security. She'd even prayed this a few few days earlier, a few weeks earlier, as she was talking with her daughter-in-laws outside of Moab, that she prayed that they would know the kindness of God and that they would find rest in the home of a husband. But I suspect also that Naomi wanted to help God out. She was getting ahead of God's providence She was misinterpreting God's providence to her. After all, Ruth had just happened to come to the field of Boaz. And maybe now she was a little frustrated with Boaz and took it upon herself to overcome his inertia, his lack of of interest in Ruth. But maybe there's more going on than meets the eye. After all, we are in the middle of barley harvest, maybe near the end, and wheat harvest was around the corner, and All in all, it would only be about seven weeks. And then what? How would Naomi provide for herself? What would her and Ruth do? How would they put food on the table? How would they pay rent? How would they put clothes on their back? Who would take care of them? And her actions were certainly, her observations were correct. Boaz, a relative. God had brought Ruth to his field. He would be winnowing barley. Who could miss the obvious? Clearly, Ruth and Boaz were meant for each other. How else could you interpret the situation? But loved ones, when God um, begins to advance in your life, know that obstacles will come. 
When you find, you will find this to be true in your life if you already haven't found it to be true. You find the perfect job, and then all of a sudden you're faced with an ethical dilemma. You find the perfect companion, companion, and then all of a sudden you're faced with biblical restrictions. You have the perfect opportunity for progress, and then all of a sudden you realize that compromise might be involved. Obstacles almost always follow opportunity. And many times those obstacles are moral ones. Many times those obstacles are God's way of screaming at us to slow down, to open our Bibles, and to trust in Him. Because we have this uncanny knack for marring God's good providences towards us. And if we were capable of it, of endangering His gracious purposes in our lives. Loved ones, providence is not a predictor of your next step. It is encouragement for the present, and it is a faith builder from the past, but it is not the predictor of your next step. And I think what Naomi was doing is she was rapidly extrapolating from the providence of God to her own conclusions, and it was an unwise procedure because she was jeopardizing the the, the, the um, reputation of Ruth, and she was jeopardizing the reputation of Boaz. She was unable to sufficiently distinguish between the purposes of the divine will of God and the desires of her own heart, and she was confusing the two. And restlessness with the providence of God is something we should always watch in our hearts. Not only that, her plot was very dangerous. Even though her motive might have been a good one on the surface and her observations right, would this be good advice to give to a young girl? Had Naomi already forgotten God's gracious providence and provision towards her? Is she really telling Ruth to to get all gussied up and go lie at a man's feet and then see what happens? Is this how God would go about it? Is this counsel from God? Is this counsel that you would give to another? The action that she's suggesting, wash, perfume up, put on a nice dress. These are often actions that that come before a sexual encounter. Is this an invitation towards sexual intimacy? Go to the threshing floor. Wait until he's relaxed. Watch where he goes and falls asleep. And then go uncover his feet and lie down there. There's deliberate ambiguity in that instruction. Is she telling Ruth to go and seduce Boaz? Hosea 9.1 says, Israel, do not rejoice jubilantly as the nations do, for you have acted promiscuously, leaving your God. You have loved the wages of a prostitute on every grain threshing floor. In the days of Israel, prostitutes would often be found on the threshing floor. The word to uncover has sexual overtones. To lie with is often used to donate sexual relations, and to uncover the feet can mean uh, cannot mean just the feet, but the legs. And that has been suggested by some as a sexual euphemism. Clearly, there are sexual overtones in the advice that she gives to Ruth. Naomi, what were you thinking? Naomi might have had in mind, let's, let's try and, and sanitize it a little bit. She might have had in mind a marriage proposal. 
For after all, Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 8 to 12, they do describe there with language very similar to the language here in Ruth chapter 3, God's preparation for his bride. But it's difficult to see how, how, how Naomi is suggesting that this be a marriage proposal. Consider this in the Bethlehem Star personal ads. Single, Moabite woman, widowed, childless, with mother-in-law, seeks well-to-do Bethlehem businessmen with view to marriage, must love mother-in-law. I doubt this would have caught much attention. Naomi, what were you thinking? And then a third option, which I do think is worth some consideration, is that maybe Naomi is telling Ruth to end her period of mourning for the loss of her husband, Malon. If it was time to move on, Naomi, to put on normal clothes and to let Boaz know that you're available. We don't know a lot about the mourning customs back in those days, but there was a time of mourning, and there was a particular garb that one would wear when they were in mourning. And there's an informative passage in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20, and that passage describes um, the death of David's child from his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. And during that child's short life, David went into mourning before God. He prayed before God that God would heal that child and that God would save that child. And while the child was still alive, he thought that he might be able to go before God and have God change his mind. However, seven days later, we read that the child died. And verse 20 tells us, Then David arose from the earth, washed, anointed himself, And changed his clothes. This would explain maybe some of the hesitation then of Boaz. If Ruth was still in mourning, it would have been inappropriate for him to investigate a relationship. Her dress and demeanor and circumstances made her truly off limits. This certainly fits with the character of Boaz as a worthy man who wanted to do things that were right before God and before man in the way that he treated her. but not sure how to interpret Naomi's advice. No matter how you look at it, there is deliberate ambiguity there. Naomi, what are you thinking? And maybe if we can understand her actions, maybe we can understand Naomi a little bit. You wonder here, maybe if there's a little bit of the the residue that earlier had led her and her family to emigrate from Israel into the land of Moab. Because as they looked around, God was not answering their prayers. God was not acting in their situation as they thought. There was a famine. There wasn't rain. There wasn't any harvest. So we better leave Israel and make our way to Moab. We devise our own ways of bringing to pass what God God has promised to give us. We refuse to wait for him and to bring it to pass in the right way, in the way that is according to his word. And I wonder here if Naomi is trying to give heaven a helping hand, if she's trying to encourage compromise. Why is she encouraging secrecy here? Go at night, wait until an opportune time. When he lies down, then go. Maybe God will act now. Naomi, what were you thinking? See, in the end of the day, even with the best motives and the purest explanations, this is a terribly risky proposal. At stake were the reputations of both Ruth and Boaz. 
At stake was sexual temptation and the possible sin of both Ruth and Boaz. At stake was the risk of public censure and humiliation. Why the night, Naomi? Why the bath and the perfume, Naomi? You see, loved ones, even our best motives, and I don't think we ever really know our motives, but our best motives and intentions in all the the world, and we might have them, are not necessarily the right reason to act on the providences of God. Because our actions might be incredibly unwise. And the actions themselves might not be a sin, but they are putting us in a place where we are tempted to sin. Opening the door for potentially disastrous consequences. Why do we want to jump ahead of God? Why do we have such a difficult time waiting for God to act on our behalf? Why do we assume that God doesn't want us to be happy? Naomi, what were you thinking? And then we have Ruth's response, verse 5 to verse 7. And she replied, all that you do, or all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. The picture painted in verse 6 is of a contented man. He's not a drunk man. And it's considerably more likely as we read this passage that Boaz was simply in a happy mood as he retired in that, at the end of that day. It had been a good day's work. It had been a profitable day's work. They had worked hard. The harvest was good. He had now eaten and he was satisfied. He had drank and he was glad. And now he lay down to sleep. This isn't the picture of a man drunk. This is the picture of a man content after a hard day's work. And Ruth here displays humility and obedience towards her mother-in-law. After all, it is difficult for us to discern Naomi's plot. Maybe Ruth was trying to discern Naomi's plot. But Ruth, in her own way, would honor both Naomi, but more importantly, as we will see, God, as she embraced her suggestions. Her approach was not boisterous, like we find in Proverbs chapter 7 of the adulterous woman. Rather, she came softly, not wanting to disturb him, and she lay down at his feet. I don't think she wanted to wake him. I don't think she wanted to disturb him. I think she wanted to be undetected, because I don't think she knew or she was entirely comfortable with what she was doing. And then we read further, at midnight... The man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have gone after young, you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, and for, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, and yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will, he will redeem you. Good. Let him do it. 
But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. I just wrote in my notes, Boaz, think before you act. Here we are in a rural setting, far away from the city. It's midnight, dark, dark, very dark. It's the kind of darkness that if you put out your hand, you can't see your hand in front of your face. But in that kind of deep darkness, the moral integrity of Boaz shines bright. Not only does Boaz shine, but Ruth also shines because it was God's name that was at stake. It was God's law that was directing their lives. It was God's law that was infusing their minds and their actions. And as Psalm 119.55 says, I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. Naomi speaks. They are a subtle way of saying Marry me. Those aren't Naomi's words. Those are Ruth's words. Spread your wings over your servant. Give me protection in your home. Take me under your care. So what will Boaz do? How does Boaz respond? The integrity and trust that Boaz displays here are an example to all of us. He could have misinterpreted, or not necessarily misinterpreted, he could have interpreted the presence of Ruth in many ways. In fact, the way that he wakes up, he didn't even know that it was Ruth. For all he knew, it could have been a prostitute that was coming to the threshing floor. But he understood that providence was not an indication of the next move. We should never presume that providence gives us a green light to proceed. Even providence needs to be submitted to Scripture. God has not left us to interpret providence on our own. And Boaz had learned a very important lesson, that providence is a Christian's diary, not his Bible. And it's so important that we remember that, dear ones, that providence may lead us to amazing situations. But it is the word of God that guides our steps forward. Providence is the Christian's diary, not his Bible. So how does Boaz respond? Great poise. What do you like when you wake up in the middle of the night? How quickly do you have your wits about you? I'm not the best. Well, I don't sleep that heavily. But... It takes a few moments for me to get my senses if I'm awoken from a deep, contented sleep. And here we read that of Boaz. It says he was startled. Makes sense. Some suggest that he was startled or he shivered because a a, a cool breeze had blown in and sort of lifted the blanket that he was sleeping under and, and it made him shiver. I think more it was the unknown presence that he all of a sudden became aware of lying at his feet. The word startle has strong emotional connections to it. Fear, anxiety, terror. Many of the currents refer to trembling from an emotional agitation before an unusual circumstance. This was certainly an unusual circumstance. And he was startled at first thought of what is going on here. But Boaz did not see this as an opportunity. He saw it as a potentially disastrous situation. 
And as somebody else has said, never mistake temptation for opportunity. You remember Joseph. He didn't mistake temptation for opportunity. He ran. Not so with David. He mistook temptation for opportunity, and he sinned. So even in this startled state, Boaz thinks, and he thinks biblically. He maintains his, his moral equilibrium, even in this emotional state, even as he's just rubbing the sleep out of his eyes. And such poise doesn't come naturally, beloved. It's the result of a mind that is constantly renewed by Scripture. So even in the night watches, we're thinking about the Word of God. Even in those dark times, um, spiritually, the Word of God is informing our actions and our, and our thinking. It's the result of learning to fear, the God, fear God. Because part of learning to fear God is saying, how can I commit this sin before God? It's also the result of a Scripture-soaked mind. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. It's the result of a God-saturated life. And his immediate response puts us at ease because we're wondering, what's he going to say? What's he going to do? And he speaks a blessing as soon as he recognized who it is. There's amazing integrity. Even in the fog of this dark midnight, Boaz is concerned about the glory of God. And when nobody is looking, he knows that even the darkness is not dark with God. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with God. The fool says in his heart, God does not see me. God can't see through the dark. Can't, God can't see through the fog. But loved ones, God sees everything, and God knows everything. And Boaz, even in the middle of the night was aware that God was watching his actions. And his main concern is not for himself, it's for Ruth, her spiritual safety. He didn't want to cause her to sin. Her moral safety. How can he guard her, her, her sense of right and wrong? Her physical safety. What would the town folk do if they got a hold of a foreigner who had come to seduce one of their own? And, and, and her reputational safety. What would people think if they found Ruth here in this particular situation? And when you think about it, Boaz could have really made a scene here. He could have really kind of stood up and shouted and got, Hey, help! There's some woman at my feet! But he doesn't do that. His actions reminded me so much of Joseph, who when Mary was found to be pregnant, he didn't want to disgrace her, and he didn't want to put her to public shame. So he thought, well, I'll put her away, or secretly. So there is this sort of recognition in Boaz that there was this desire to do right by Ruth, even though the situation was awkward. He didn't interpret her presence there as sexual but rather as honorable. He's amazed at her kindness. It's like, Ruth, you could have married for status. You could have married somebody young and strong and good-looking. Or you could have married for, for money. You didn't choose somebody rich. Or you could have married for love, somebody poor, but somebody that you really loved. But rather, he recognizes that, that maybe Ruth is marrying for all of those things or maybe none of those things. But even in her request to marry him, she was even thinking of her mother-in-law, Naomi. So we see his poise, we see his integrity, we also see his personal disposition. He was just a good guy. 
He makes a promise. I will marry you because you're a worthy woman. Everybody's talking about that. Everybody sees that you're a beautiful woman. And your inner beauty is something that is outshining your external beauty. And in fact, he was smart, wise enough to recognize that inner beauty is what continues to grow and become even more beautiful, even though our outward beauty begins to fade over time. And he says, I'll do what you ask. It's like he says to her, yeah, I'll marry you, Ruth. I like this idea. And we think, wow, this is going to end well. Man meets girl, fall in love, marry. But then this startling revelation. Who would have saw it coming? Talk about an obstacle being put in the way of providence. I can only picture Ruth's face just dropping. Silence that, that was almost as, as thick as the darkness. And even then, I'm amazed at the integrity of Boaz. Ruth, there's another man in the picture. Ruth, I can't marry you because there's somebody that has a call on you ahead of me. I will not take advantage of you. I will not force providence. I will not sin against you or this other man or against God. That's integrity. That's a God-saturated life. But he doesn't leave it there. For he he gives Ruth a a, a strong assurance. He says, Ruth, I will settle this once and for all in the morning. I will do whatever I can to make this right so our relationship can be right before, before man and before God. As the Lord lives, it's the last thing I do. Boaz will do the right thing. You see, how we live and how we respond to challenges, crisis, and trials reveals what we really believe about God and what we really think about Him deep down inside. Who is shaping you? Who is shaping your actions? What is guiding your next step? Is it the providence of God or is it the Word of God? Boaz was being transformed into the likeness and the image of Yahweh. Slowly but surely, God was being formed in his life. And it's what Paul said many years later, oh my my dear children, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains for you again, and they will continue until Christ is fully developed in your lives. Another verse says, until Christ is formed in you. Christ was being formed in Boaz's life. Where is the evidence that you are being formed by Christ? Is there evidence that, that God is shaping you after his likeness and after his image? Personal integrity commands at least as much respect and admiration under cover of darkness as in broad daylight. And then verse 14, just the first part of it. So she lay at his feet until the morning. It's always darkest before the dawn. When the mind races... I was thinking about this. This must have been the longest three or four hours of their short relationship together. I doubt if either of them slept much now that they had been disturbed and they had talked and all these things were running through their minds. I thought about Ruth. Did I blow it? What if the other relative uses his right of redemption? I've made such an idiot of myself. But Boaz cares for me. Boaz even said he would marry me. Oh God, have I messed things up? 
Naomi, why did you put me in this situation? Happy, afraid, anxious, praying, along three hours. And then Boaz, God, thank you. God, why me? God, give me strength for this morning. God, give me favor this morning. God, guide my interactions this morning. I never thought I would marry, and I never thought I would marry somebody as worthy as Ruth. And so we wonder, will this budding relationship last long enough to flower? And then we read even a little farther, but they arose before one could recognize each other. And he said, let it not be known that a woman has come to the threshing floor. And he said, bring your garment that you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. It was still dark, but dawn was fast approaching. There was still time to protect their reputations. There was still time to protect the innocents. We know that some tongues love to wag at situations like this. Why do we need to talk so much? In light of Hosea 9.1, though, it makes perfect sense that they need to quickly disperse before the light shines. Don't let anyone find out about this meeting. Don't let anyone know that a woman came to the threshing floor tonight. And Ruth, before you go, give me your outer garment. And whether he scoops with his hand or scoops with a bucket, six measures of barley. And then it says, you note, that he put it on her. Why? It was like 90 pounds or more of barley slung over her shoulder. Ruth had left empty. She was going home full. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? I don't know if she said it that. He probably said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her that all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Naomi, now you're thinking... I don't suspect that Naomi slept much that night. Was she wrestling in prayer? Was she regretting the advice that she had given? Was she worried about the outcome? And her very question reveals her anxiousness. How did it go last night, Ruth? And Ruth gave the details, and the narrator records the information about the barley. And these are the last words of Ruth that we find in the whole of the story. I think the grain was a bit of a mild rebuke from God. Naomi, you are not empty. Naomi, you can trust me. I think the barley was an indication that Boaz would take her under his wings regardless and provide for her. I think it was a gift of good faith that his intentions for Ruth were honorable. But there's a different attitude in Naomi now. You see it? She says, wait, Ruth. Wait. Wait for the providence of God. You know, she doesn't scheme to how can she get to the gate and how can she meet this guy and how can she set up her arrangement. How? No, now it's Wait. She had learned, even through the night, the difference between running ahead of the providence of God and waiting on the providence of God. Sit tight, Ruth. 
Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Commit everything to the Lord. Trust him and he will help you. He will make your innocence radiate like the dawn and the justice of your cause will shine like the noonday sun. Be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. So beloved, do not run ahead of the providence of God this week in the actions of your life. Don't run ahead of what God is doing in your life. Don't misinterpret the providence of God for the guidance of God. Be those who are found in the word of God to rightly interpret the circumstances that God has brought your way. Providence will at times lead us into the night, but it's the word of God that will lead us into the morning. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight.